pray with me? Father, that would be our prayer, that the Holy Spirit would come now upon us in such a way that His passion would become our passion. We know that His passion is Christ and Christ alone, and so we pray that we would have the very passion that the Spirit has, that we would be passionate for Christ. So please open us, fill us, enable us to hear and act in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Acts in chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, I want to read the first 11 verses there as I did last Sunday. But then, I want to also read the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 first, then Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. anyone knows who usually sits there, call them this week. Oh, like empty there. I don't know why. Hmm, excuse me. Acts in chapter 1. Hear the word of God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his sufferings by many proofs appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia... Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. Now the reason that I read both these passages together is because what is promised in chapter 1 comes in chapter 2. 
So what I read in that part of chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, uh, happens in chapter 2. Um, Jesus had rose, risen from the dead, and he's meeting with his disciples, and he's telling them again about the promise of the Father, the promise of the Father being the Holy Spirit, this one who was promised all the way from the Old Testament through the New this Holy Spirit, and he says, I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait there, because remember, John said that he baptized with water, but the one coming after him, which is Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So he says, go wait, because you're going to be baptized in or with, you could translate that preposition preposition either way, in or with the Holy Spirit, and so you need to wait. It's going to happen while you're waiting in Jerusalem. And then, on the day of Pentecost, which is 50 days after uh, the Passover, for us, 50 days after Easter, um, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, he says the Holy Spirit is going to come uh, upon them. And it happens. Um, uh, We read about it, and and it happens quite suddenly, it says, I would assume so. How could you anticipate such a thing? On the one hand, it was no surprise to them. They'd been waiting. They knew that the Holy Spirit in some way was going to come upon them. What that would actually look like, I don't think they really knew. But here he comes, and boom, he's upon them. And it sounds, the, the, the way it's described is like a loud, rushing a wind, a mighty wind coming through. It wasn't a mighty wind. It was God. But it sounded like a freight train coming through, sounded like a tornado, whatever a loud, rushing, mighty wind would sound like, that's what it sounded like. And then there were were these tongue-looking things, uh, as of fire, looking like fire, sort of dancing on their heads. Now, if you think about this loud, rushing wind being God, the very wind, the very breath of God coming through, tongues of fire, you're thinking, somebody's going to talk and it's going to burn, right? I mean, you know, you get this sense of God talking, Tongues of fire, and it rests upon them. And then exactly what Jesus said would happen, happened. By that I mean, he said to them, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. You're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And you're going to be my witnesses throughout the whole earth. The whole no- he says, you're, you're going to go everywhere. This message of the gospel, this message of the kingdom is going to go everywhere. And what we have here is a snapshot of that happening in that moment in time. Because they are his witnesses at that mo- moment in time. They are witnesses of Jesus at that moment in time to the ends of the earth. And you say, well, how can that happen? Well, notice... Let me just read chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the spirits gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. How convenient! Everyone was there. Why? Because it was Pentecost. And Pentecost was a, a festival, one of the three, where, where people had to come to Jerusalem to celebrate it. Uh, it, it. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that it's a, a feast of harvest, a feast of first fruits. 
But as, as tradition happened in ancient Israel, it, became to be a, it came to be a celebration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Because in their sort of working through their church calendar, they went from Passover in Egypt to Sinai in 50 days and said, all right, there we celebrate the Passover. Now we're going to celebrate the giving of the law. Here we're going to celebrate our being delivered out of slavery. And then we're going to celebrate our coming together as a nation. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say it was Pentecost. That's the time, because on the one hand, it was, it, was, it was to represent this harvest of people coming into the kingdom, or because it was going to celebrate this group of people coming together as the church, uh, like Sinai. At Sinai, the law was given, and these people came together as the nation of God. It doesn't say that anywhere, but it's cool. You can think about that. But, but here it is on this particular day, and how convenient that the people, representatives from, from, from the whole known world seem to be there. So the, they're all Jewish in some sense, so, and some proselytes, some who were Gentiles who were there in that crowd. So, so it's, a, it's still a little jaded, it's still a little provincial, it's still a little contained. It's, it's going to go out, and we'll see later as we work our way through the book of Acts. But right there, at that moment in time, we get a snapshot of what it means when the Holy Spirit comes at this particular time. And you can say, well, that's, that's really convenient. How did that all happen? Well, centuries before, God dispersed the Jews. Then when the Babylonians came in, they exiled them, and they took them to all other places. And during the course of, of, of those centuries, those people stayed there, and they lived there, and they had their families there, and they entered even into the culture of those other people and took upon themselves the language of this, of this other people. But still, they knew, at least by this time, to come back to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and so they did, so there they all were. But then the second question would be, how in the world are we going to be able to communicate to them What language should we use? Well, amazingly, God used their own language. He had a bunch of Galileans. Now, that's that's sort of a cultural slur on the Galileans. When they say, how can this be going on? These are all Galileans. They didn't say, how could this be going on? These are all well-educated men. If they were well-educated men, they'd think, well, maybe they learned these languages. But, but saying they were Galileans was sort of like saying, how can this happen? This is just a bunch of hillbillies. Uh, or whatever other thing I think, I don't know that any of you would be represented by hillbillies, so I can use that. And you, every we can all laugh. Uh, so whatever it is that, you know, graduated from Missouri or what, I, I don't know, whatever, 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 whatever that might, whatever that might be. Um, We say, that can't happen. These are uneducated people. These, these aren't sophisticated people. They can't know these languages. It's impossible. And so the Spirit of God came upon them at that moment in time, that moment, and they, they spoke these languages they had never learned, and they were heard, and, and they were heard right in the language of the people, which is so important, obviously, as we communicate the gospel. It's always interesting to me when I, I talk to people who, who study other languages and people come here to the U.S. to study in our universities. And, and very often, uh, people learn just a segment of the language, whatever their field might happen to be in. I'll use uh, one of our uh, folks, Anna Kulik, that some of you know. Uh, Anna is, uh, lives in Germany, is from Germany, but lives in Asia right now. So she's trilingual, bless her heart. She speaks English, German, 
and also Chinese. And it's, it's really amazing. And, uh, one, and she's a doctor in the midst of that. And so when she was here, I had a little ailment, and I was trying to get some free advice. And so I said, here's my situation. And she said, I've never learned the English for that, so I don't know how to help you. And I said, I've never learned the German for how I feel either. Uh, so we were really stuck. But, but she hadn't learned medical language in English, so we couldn't communicate there. Would you understand how difficult it is to communicate the gospel in another language? Because you need to know the language of their heart. It isn't just some objective one, two, three, four. When we communicate the gospel to people, we're communicating heart to heart. And there's something there, something intimate, something very significant. And God overcame all that, and he pierced the very hearts of people using people who didn't know those languages to speak those languages in the most intimate, no doubt, kind of way. And what they were speaking, of course, were the mighty deeds of God. That's what they heard. And of course that would be true. Because if you were here last week, we went through, and we'll go through some more today, a a, a myriad of verses talking about the Holy Spirit and what he would do. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone, when the Holy Spirit enters into a person's life, what happens is that, that he glorifies Jesus. That is, he brings Jesus up close and personal. The mighty deed of God himself in Jesus. You see, the great deed of God, we could say, is creation. That's awesome. But when we think about redemption, that is, when we think about our own salvation, we think about what Jesus did on the cross, that is a great, mighty deed. In that one action, when Jesus is on the cross, think about what's happening. The very justice of God is being satisfied. He's a just and holy God. And he says, sin requires hell, eternal punishment. And right at that moment, eternal punishment, eternal hell, is being poured out upon Jesus for the sins of sinners, the judgment of God. And at the same time, the love and mercy of God is being poured out at that moment. Because he's pouring out his wrath upon Jesus for others, the likes of you and me. And so we see the judgment of God and the mercy of God all in one great event. Who can do that? And no doubt they're speaking the very mighty deeds of God. Because you see, the promise of the Father was indeed the Holy Spirit. And Jesus had promised that he would baptize them in with the Holy Spirit. Now, for that to take place, Jesus first had to ascend because the Holy Spirit was coming to glorify Jesus, come to show how great Jesus was. And he couldn't show how great Jesus was until Jesus had finished everything on earth that he had come to do. And once that was all finished, and once he ascended, and once he was enthroned, then he was glorious. He was exalted. He was the King. He was the Savior. He was the Lord. And the Holy Spirit would come now and present to us Jesus in all of his fullness. Um, That's how Peter understands it in Acts 2, verse 33. We'll get to this in a couple of weeks. Uh, Peter's preaching, and he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, that is Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, He has 
poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so what happened then was Jesus baptized them in the Holy Spirit. And he poured the Holy Spirit. He's a good Presbyterian. So being a, you know, when he baptized, he poured. That's what he did. And so he poured the Holy Spirit uh, out upon them. And when he did that, the Spirit then glorifies Jesus. And, and the word about Jesus goes out. And, and again, we'll expect that. Let's just quickly run through some of what we ran through last week in Jesus' teaching about the Holy Spirit. For instance, in, in John in chapter 14 and verse 15, Jesus puts it like this. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. So Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to ask the Father to send the Spirit, because it's the promise of the Father. The Father's promised that when my work is completed, and I ascend, then he'll send the Spirit, so my Spirit will be with you, and you won't be alone. So he's going to come and he's going to be a helper to you, a comforter to you. He's going to be the one that's going to be able to help you get along and help you to get along with what I'm commanding you to do. I remember when I was studying Greek years ago, uh, the word for this helper or comforter is the word parakletos. And the way that I remember that it meant helper or comforter is because I remember the time in my Little League days that I got my first paracletes. Um, when you're in Little League, you got rubber cleats, and they were just pretend. But when you got to be 13, you got metal, steel cleats, and they really helped you. So that first paracletes enabled you to run and enabled you to be free, and it was wonderful. And so I said, yes, that's what he does. He comes and helps us Move along. Help us get out there. Uh, and and I, I listened once. One of my seminary professors preached a sermon once on the Holy Spirit. And he referred to him as the parakeet. Paraclete. I'm getting cornier as I go along, aren't I? <laughs> but what he said is that when the paraclete comes, when this comforter comes along, he's a parakeet. He just says what Jesus says. Whatever it is that Jesus says, he repeats. And so always when the Holy Spirit shows up, it's, it's really the things of Jesus showing up in your life. And so Jesus says, I'm going to leave him with you. So in a sense, I'll be right there, I'll be right there with you. And, and he, he says to them, you know him. See, even at that point in time, though the Spirit hadn't come at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was alive and well, and still working, in a sense, in their lives as he had been for all eternity. He had been for his eternal God. For you know him. He dwells with you and will be with you. And then in verse... 26 of this chapter. But the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So when the Spirit comes, then we'll see Jesus. And then in chapter 15, in verse 26, Jesus puts it like this. He says, But when the helper comes, whom I uh, will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness uh, about me. And he certainly will. See, that's... We, we sang a minute ago. Uh, oh, draw our hearts into your holy passion. What's better, who, is the holy passion of the Holy Spirit? What is the holy passion of the Holy Spirit? Jesus, right? I mean, that's the answer to every question I ever ask. Um, but it is true. That's the holy passion of the Holy Spirit. If, if the Holy Spirit were sitting here... 
It's going to get strange. But if he were and you said, what do you want to talk about? He'd say, Jesus. Who's your favorite person? He'd say, Jesus. What's the most significant thing that ever happened? Jesus. I mean, that's, he comes to glorify him, to reflect him. That's his holy passion. So he's going to be a witness of Jesus. So what do you think is going to happen to a group of people upon whom the Holy Spirit comes? What are they going to be? They're going to be witnesses of the Holy Spirit? No, not particularly. They're going to be witnesses of Jesus if the Holy Spirit is on them. See, the word baptism, to baptize, we think about it in dunking people or sprinkling people or pouring people or arguing about how we're going to do that. Um, It really, metaphorically, what it means is to identify with. If you're baptized into something, for instance, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul speaks of being baptized into Moses. That's kind of funny, isn't it? But he means to identify with Moses as your leader. Um, in, in, in ancient Greece, Greek, the, the word to baptize was often used in the industry of dyeing cloth. And so if you took a piece of white cloth and you either immersed it into blue dye or poured blue dye on it, depending you know, if you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian uh, dye person, um, it would be re-identified. It would change its identity. Not from cloth. It would still be cloth, but it would be go from being white to being blue. And so there's a sense of a change. What are you going to identify with? So when we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're identifying with God. When we're baptized in with by the Holy Spirit, we're identifying with the work of the Holy Spirit. We're identifying with the presence of the Holy Spirit, which means we're identifying with being witnesses of Jesus. Then chapter 7 in John's Gospel. Verse 37, there was a, a day, and I, won't, I don't have time to explain all of this. It was, it was the Feast of Tabernacles, and, and Jesus eventually, eventually makes his way there. And in this Feast of Tabernacles, there was all kinds of water and all kinds of sacrifices and that sort of thing. And the last day of the Feast, verse 37, we read this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as, this, as the scripture has said, <clears throat> excuse me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now John, the apostle who's writing this, gives us a little parenthetical. You know, you're kind of reading through the gospel of John and Jesus says this and you might wonder, what in the world is Jesus talking about? So John gives us a little parenthetical and he says, Now this he said about the Spirit... And those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, the Holy Spirit wasn't going to come until Jesus was exalted, until all that Jesus had come to do was done, until all that Jesus had come to do was done, and he was exalted and sitting enthroned. Because you see, when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, it's sort of marking out a new age for us. Uh, Joel whom Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2, says that at that time, when the Holy Spirit is poured out like that, it's the last days. I know there are all kinds of books these days that say the last days. It's been the last days since the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. We're in the last days. So you could say we're in the laster of the last days, or the lastest of the last days, or the last days are getting laster and laster. I don't know how you want to put that. So don't get, you know, don't run out and buy those books. You know, you, you can, but uh, but you don't have to read them that fast because we've been in the last days um, <clears throat> for a long time. And one day it'll be the last day, and then whoever's lucky enough to have published on that day and sold some books will 
not make any money because it'll be it. But anyway, <laughs> we're in the last days. That's where we are. And in these last days, meaning Jesus has come and everything has been accomplished for the salvation of his people. That is to say, that he's died for the sins of sinners. It's done. That work is over. The wrath of God has been propitiated is the big word. Meaning it's, it's gone. There's no case against those people for whom Christ died in heaven. And as they believe, they're justified and they come into the faith, if you will, and they come into the very acceptance of God at that point. So it's all been done. And he said, now how are we going to live in these last days? He said, I'll send my spirit. And of course we know the work of the Holy Spirit is varied. We know the work of the Holy Spirit is such that, that, that he comes and he's the very one. In John chapter 3, he said he's the one who gives us new life. We must be born uh, from, by the Spirit, born from above. Well, the technical word is regeneration. And so for a person to come to faith, we know that, that they need new life. Jesus told Nicodemus, you can't see or you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you've been born again. That's a work of the Holy Spirit in us. So when that happens and a person is free, then a person is free to, 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 to choose to believe Jesus at that point. Say, yes, I receive him. I trust him. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. We know another work of the Holy Spirit is to come into us and to, and to sort of um, birth in us the very character of Christ, to form the very character of Christ in us. That's his work of, of sanctifying us, making us holy. But of course, both of those glorify Jesus. On the one hand, someone comes and says, ah, I believe in Jesus. He's the one who died for me. He is the King. He is the Lord. I will follow Him. And someone comes to faith and that glorifies Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And our sanctification, this coming in holiness and growing in holiness, that, that glorifies Jesus because whose character are we exemplifying? We're exemplifying the character of Jesus. The Holy Spirit isn't isn't finished with us until he sees Jesus in us because he has come to glorify him and to show him and to make him great. But not only that, there's this thing in Acts 2 that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll have power and your identity now is to be a witness of all of these things concerning Jesus. A witness by way of your faith a witness by way of your holiness, a witness by way of your life, a witness by way of your speech. Everything, that's our identity. As followers of Christ, as people have been born again by the Spirit, as people, the Holy Spirit has come upon. We're to be His witnesses. That's got to be in our head all the time. I'm to testify by my very life that Christ has come that the kingdom of God has come, that the rule of God has come, that forgiveness of sins has come, that acceptance by God through Jesus has come, that that's what my life is to look like all the time. And I'm called into that very thing. Now the question, and I hate to ask this question, because I'm very tense about the answer. I'm, I'm, I struggle with the answer, frankly. But the question, of course, is, well, have we received the baptism within the Holy Spirit? Is that a repeatable thing? Is that something that every generation needs to do? Is that something every Christian needs to do? There are some who would say that it's a separate experience, that you come to faith on one day, and then later on, after you've waited a while and prayed, and the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power. Um, 
Here's my take. That is that on the one hand, it's a non-repeatable event that took place in history on a day in Pentecost, at Pentecost, in that time where the Holy Spirit was poured out upon people. Because that was the first day that the Holy Spirit could come to begin this new age. And he could come then, couldn't come before, because as I said a while ago, that Jesus had yet to be exalted, that Jesus had yet to be enthroned. And so now once Jesus is enthroned, he goes to the Father and he says, I want to send the Spirit so that my kingdom can go in them, so that my kingdom can be revealed to them. I'm here ruling and reigning, and my spirit will take then and rule and reign in them, and this kingdom will expand to the very ends of the earth. It doesn't have a nationalistic boundary. It doesn't have an ethnic boundary. It doesn't have a language boundary. It doesn't have any boundary. It goes across the whole earth. And he says, so, so they're going to take it. And so the Holy Spirit comes. That's the day it can come. In fact, the our liturgical friends, those in the what we call the high churches, our high Presbyterian friends and Episcopal friends and Anglican friends and Roman Catholic friends and so forth, uh, they have a church calendar. And the way the church calendar works, it works around discrete historical days where significant things happened in the history of our redemption. So it starts in Advent as we're, as we're preparing for Christmas. And then Christmas comes. That's the incarnation. That's the big day that all of Advent had been looking for. And then you go into a few little nebulous Sundays of Christmas tide. And then Epiphany. You've got to be a good Episcopalian to know what that is. Uh, so Epiphany, it's this, this, this time that you begin to think about who is this Jesus who's been revealed to us. Uh, and then you move into Lent. begins with Ash Wednesday. And at that particular time, you begin to think about the, 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 the suffering of Christ, the movement of Christ to the cross, and what all that means. And then you come into Holy Week, as Jesus comes in this great day of Palm Sunday. And then there's that Thursday where he meets with his disciples in that intimate way. And there's that crucifixion day. And then there's the resurrection Easter, another great day. And then you move from that through this period called Easter time. But then comes the Ascension and then Pentecost. And so you, you see in the life of Christ his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his Ascension, Pentecost. All of those wrapped together and say, what's happened here? Christ has come. And now his spirit has come. And he's ruling and reigning through his spirit even now. Non-repeatable Pentecost. Boom, it happened. We're cool. It's moving. Second reason I think it's sort of a non-repeatable thing is there's nowhere in the New Testament where there's a command for us to be baptized in or with the Holy Spirit. The expression, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is used seven times in the New Testament. Four times in the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, quote John the Baptist in saying, I've come to baptize in water, but the one who comes after me comes to baptize in the Holy Spirit. The fifth time it's used is in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus is quoting John the Baptist. Pretty famous guy. Jesus quotes you. Uh, Jesus is quoting John the Baptist saying, he said, remember, that I'm going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. The sixth time it's used, it's used in Acts chapter 11, and Peter uses it. And he uses it because the Holy Spirit has now been poured out on the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius, and Peter says, whew, this looks like the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so he's convinced the Gentiles got it too. The seventh time it's used, it's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, where Paul writes, for by one spirit, really you could translate that in one spirit, 
For in one spirit, we have all been baptized into one body. And that's it. So in none of the problems in the New Testament does the apostle or anyone else come and say, what your problem is, is you need to be baptized with the Spirit. So, it seems to me that that isn't something I should be looking for, to be baptized in with by the Holy Spirit. It seems like the normative thing is that when a person comes to faith, that that occurs. Uh, Peter gives that impression in Acts 2, when he gives this great sermon. Ultimately, 3,000 people come to faith, and he says this, And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children uh, and for all who are far off, everyone with whom our uh, God calls to himself. So you get the sense that Peter is saying, You don't have to wait, you don't have to pray, just believe. And It's yours. But there's something here. There's something about being empowered to be witnesses that I think we mustn't just glide by. I read this and I have to tell you that no matter what my exegesis says, I long to be one empowered in a way that I've not yet seen. I long to be one and for us to be a church of ones whose desire is such that our passion is the passion of the Holy Spirit, the passion to exalt Christ, the passion to make Him known, the passion to live and to speak in such a way that people see in us Jesus. Not simply sort of a steady state of perseverance, which I love. Uh, I love talking to steady state persevering Christians who've persevered for 60 years and love Jesus and all that. That's great. It's not an either or. But I long for times when he will pour himself out in such a way that will be unique and different and Pardon my little editorial heart moment. And to pray for that. Because you see, there is this repeatable thing called the filling of the Spirit. When the baptism of the Spirit comes, it always says that they're filled, it says here they're filled with the Spirit. And to be filled with the Spirit means characterized by the Spirit. You know, if somebody comes to you and says you're full of baloney, it means you're characterized by baloney, whatever that is. It's not a good thing, by the way. But if somebody comes to you and says you're full of wisdom, it means you're characterized by wisdom. When the scripture says that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, you get this sense that it's the Holy Spirit that characterizes them, meaning that Jesus is being glorified. And we can see it, for instance, in, in Acts uh, chapter 4, um, we find the apostles filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, for instance, in in, in in, in chapter 4, verse 8, um, um, it says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. So you get this sense that something had come on over him. Uh, in chapter 4, later, beginning in verse 23, uh, after some of the uh, disciples who had been arrested were released, they begin to pray. Uh, and, and part of their prayer is this, um, verse 29. 
And now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You remember Paul writes in Ephesians in chapter 5. He says to the people, don't be drunk with wine, that's debauchery, that's just... But be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's a command. And not only is it a command, but it's a continuous command. Those of you who hung around churches enough, you know there are different Greek verb tenses and all of that. And this particular Greek verb tense is, is, is continue to be filled. A continuous filling. To continue to, to go to, to God and say, I want your spirit to guide me. I want your spirit to lead me. I want your spirit uh, to be the very mover in my life so that I can exalt Christ. I think that's what it means to be a witness. That's what it means to be empowered to witness. And I think that's what I want. Increasingly filled for people to see Jesus, that is my identity witness. That is the desire of my heart that Christ be known. And so before God on my face is fill me, Holy Spirit. Because without that, I can't make your passion my passion. Uh, J.I. Packer in a book called Keep in Step with the Spirit ends a little section on this by talking about two questions that we, two we shouldn't ask and two we should. He says, first, we shouldn't ask this, do I know the Holy Spirit? He says, rather we should ask, do I know Jesus? Because if you know Jesus, then you know the Spirit because he's the revealer of Jesus to you. Second question we shouldn't ask is this, do I have the Holy Spirit? Because he says, yes, of course you do have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, if you're a believer in Christ... The scripture says that you have the Holy Spirit. The question should be, does the Holy Spirit have me? Well, in one sense, of course, the Holy Spirit does have us. He's the Lord. He's not a slippery-fingered person. But his point is this. Am I following him? Am I seeking him? Am I yielding to him that Jesus might be glorified through me? Let's pray, Father. Pray for me and for us as a company of people upon whom the Holy Spirit has come. That you would fill us. And in that filling, I pray that people would see in us the Lord Jesus, that his kingdom has come, that he rules and reigns, that he is the very one who has conquered sin and death, thus in him there's forgiveness of sins. And there's life transformation. And there's kindness. And there's mercy. And there's grace. And there's love exemplified through us because we belong to him. 
So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill us, that you would do this work in us that enables people to see Jesus and that you would empower us to be your witnesses here, there, and everywhere. That we might show forth the mighty deeds of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you please to stand for the benediction.